Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of this series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Impermanence, Living with Reality. The talk was given by Badra Mitchell on December 17th, 2022, via Zoom. Badra is a longtime spiritual practitioner whose work has involved living with cancer and having her house burned down in a wildfire in Boulder County, Colorado. In this talk, she tells the story of how the unforeseen circumstances of her life have brought her to work on deeper levels with attachment, identification, groundlessness, surrender, and acceptance. Badra begins with quotes from her teacher, Lee Lozowick, and the Buddhist teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh. She speaks about a work eye, a part of ourselves that genuinely recognizes the gift that such struggles offer. Badra discusses the way that her experience has evoked compassion for others and appreciation for the Sangha, the spiritual community of people who provided support for her. She talks about how she felt guided through her process and about the magical way that a vigraha, a statue of Lee's teacher, Yogi Ramsarat Kumar, who she refers to as the yogi, was discovered intact after the fire that burned down her home. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Badra Mitchell. So welcome. Today, we're talking about impermanence. And the following series of questions are what I'd like you to consider as we begin this discussion on impermanence. I'll start out with a series of quotes, and then I'll begin to talk about my personal experience. And hopefully, that will help flush out this important topic. So first off, what is impermanence? Is it the end of life or the beginning? Is it a gift or a curse? Do we have any control over impermanence? How can we use impermanence to enhance our experience of life? How often do you think of impermanence and how does it inform your life? Some of you may be wondering how I ended up talking about impermanence and what my qualifications are. I've been living with impermanence for uh, a number of years, um, especially since I learned that I had a terminal disease, cancer. And also my house burned down last year. <laughs> Someone euphemistically said to me, wow, you are the poster child for impermanence. So those are two qualifications, two events that have given me a lot of opportunity to live with and consider impermanence. More on the personal later. Impermanence, it's, it's been in my face in a very big way. So I decided to write down terms that were coming up as I considered the topic of impermanence. And I'm just going to run through the list and hopefully it'll give you an inkling of 
what we're going to talk about. So eternal, death, rebirth, linear time, presence, change, transition, attachment, identification, projections, denial, fear, unity, freedom, momentary, divine path of growing old, groundlessness, surrender, and grace. It pretty much covers everything (laughs) about living and being on the path. Okay, so now I'm going to start with a bunch of quotes. So this is from Lee. It is from the book, Just This. Consider attachment now. Death. What is it about this transition that we find ourselves clinging sometimes desperately to? To our resistance to it, to what we call life. Is it really life that we wish to prolong or is it attachment, seeking, sentiment? Even as many of us have experienced with the passing death of our parents, if one is quite elderly, there is frequently a fierce unwillingness to let go. To let go of what? Our bedroom in the old age home? Our enthusiasm for mashed potatoes? Our nostalgic memories of our youth? And if we're younger and have children still dependent on our care or a loving partner, or a substantial material resource, or physical beauty, or a thriving artistic life, even then, what? What is it that we cling to with such tenacity and even devotion? It's useful to think deep and hard on this question. It may prove worthwhile, profitable even, to figure out these issues of our clinging, our identifications to our dream images, our wish to make solid the intangible and inherent empty. And then he has in quotes, form is emptiness. So if and when it's our time to confront this phenomena called death, we can respond as adults with grace, dignity, and nobility. This is from a pink journal, which has an incredibly long title, and I'll just skip it. Death and everything it's associated with is still too scary for most people to deal with directly. Too bad. Until we, each of us, deals with death straight ahead and free from illusion, projection, fear of loss, and doubt, we will be quite stymied in our attempts to fully profit from the path. I'm not suggesting we begin to unemotionally slay small animals as a way to confront our denial or watch every slasher film we can find. And at the same time, it's useful, particularly useful, to not avoid the reality that we are, without question, mortal. Because you, yes, you are going to age, deteriorate, and ultimately, maybe a lot sooner than you expect or wish, drop that thing for a more subtle existence. Death, dying, can be a bit trying, yes, but death is no biggie. Death, it's always here. Somebody's always dying. A friend has said we start dying from the moment we're born. Another says from 26 years, it's all downhill. Whatever, death need not be celebrated. 
It need not be grieved. It is simply the natural order of things, of all things separate, of all things thingy, of all form, name, and content. Only truth, context, is eternal. Only God, we could say, if we want to be theistic. And why not? And then finally, I'll do one more quote from Thich Nhat Hanh. And Thich Nhat Hanh, he just died this year in January. He was a Vietnamese Buddhist who practiced engaged Buddhism. He was an activist. And so engaged Buddhism deals with political issues, etc. And his particular form of Buddhism is Zen Buddhism. When we look deeply at the nature of things, we see that in fact, everything is impermanent. Nothing exists as a permanent entity. Everything changes. It's said that we cannot step into the same river twice. If we look for a single permanent entity in a river, we will not find it. The same is true of our physical body. There is no such thing as a self, no absolute permanent entity to be found in the element we call body. In our ignorance, we believe that there is a permanent entity in us, and our pain and suffering manifest on the basis of that ignorance. If we touch deeply the non-self nature in us, we can get out of that suffering. Okay, so that's a lot to take in. So now I'm going to talk about my personal experience. Padra, can you just read that last line of, of Thich Nhat Hanh? Sure. If we touch deeply the no-self nature in us, we can get out of that suffering. Basically, the whole consideration of impermanence puts the fear of God in everybody. It creates the illusion of separation, and it causes a lot of suffering because we're terrified of losing whatever. In 2003, I was very lucky because the type of cancer that I'm living with usually does not present symptoms until it's metastasized and it's almost too late to do anything. I started having severe symptoms and got to the hospital and they ran a bunch of tests and they couldn't figure out what was going on. And they kept me for a day and I left the next day and thought, okay, maybe this was just some random thing that went on. That was on Monday. And then on Saturday, I started having symptoms again and went back to the hospital and they did a scope and they found that I had a tumor on my small intestine. The doctor said to me, well, we're going to do a laparoscopy. And if we find anything, we're going to take it out. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he goes, oh, well, you know, if we find any cancer. And I went, cancer? The big C? So. They did. They found that tumor that started in 2003. And I thought after I had surgery that everything was fine. And I even in 2005 was able to go to India. And I thought, wow, I dodged a bullet there. And then in 2016, I started having symptoms again. And I'm pretty phobic about allopathy. I've always done natural and alternative kinds of things. So I really tried to manage 
what was going on on my own. And I met with this one oncological surgeon who was the top surgeon in the country and fortunately, synchronistically, had been wooed to Denver just the year before. He said, well, okay, do what you need to do, but I think you're going to end up coming back and we're going to have to do surgery. So things got worse. And six months later, in 2017, I had surgery that lasted for nine hours and a lot was taken out and my liver and my diaphragm were debulked of tumors. And I was in kind of rough shape. As a side note, the Sangha, the community showed up for me in spades. Women came to take care of me, which was very humbling. And one of the first lessons I had to learn with that is to surrender my house and my care to others. Usually when people come to visit, I like to host them, host and run around. So I really was in no position, unable to offer that. And so I just had to surrender and allow people to care for me and take care of me. That was the beginning of a series of important lessons for me. So last year (laughs) was a challenging year. I was in and out of hospitals and care facilities trying to figure out what was going on with me. And I was working with a naturopath. I guess it was some karmic thing I had to go through because that experience began to be very painful and detrimental to my healing. At one point, my daughter stepped in and she said, Mom, if you don't stop going to this nature path, I'm going to have to remove myself from your healing team. And she was a big proponent. So I pretty much had to graciously bow out of that experience and working with that woman and had a a CAT scan that showed I had another tumor that was twisting my descending sigmoid colon. Very painful, very intense. And I didn't realize that I was starving. I was down to 92 pounds and pretty much was starving my brain and everything else. And so we scheduled surgery in August and I went in a week ahead to the hospital and they started feeding me intravenously for three days food. And on the third day, I think of myself like a tank. I'd reached a level where things came back online and I recognized how much offline I had been. My sense of humor came back, a number of cognitive functions that were unbeknownst to me gone came back and they were trying to strengthen and boof me up for the surgery that happened. So the surgery happened. It's really saved my life and given me the opportunity to eat again in a way that I wasn't able to do that. And also then made it through the holidays and everything was fine. And I was ready to put 2021 to bed. And I remember thinking, yay, this year is going to go away. 
And then on December 30th, there was a fire and my house burned down. And it was pretty dramatic. Just briefly, I usually air out my house in the morning and I noticed that it was filling with smoke. And I thought, wow, what's going on? And I went outside and saw that the sky was both red and black. So I called the town of Superior and I said, is there a fire nearby here? (laughs) Duh. And the lady that I talked to said, oh yeah, there's a fire. It's happening on Marshall. And I said, is there anything I need to do? I'm thinking evacuate. Are you going to tell me I need to? She said, no, I don't think so. I'm like, oh, okay. And I hang up. And then five minutes later, I get a message, an Amber alert from the sheriff saying, you have less than 10 minutes to get out of your house. And I'm running around, you know, trying to get some essential things. And I have two cats. And usually when I bring out the carrier, they freak out and they run away. And this time, for some reason, the one that I could see allowed me to put her in the carrier and I put it in my car. And then the other cat I couldn't find. And of course, I had already called my daughter and she was saying, stay where you are. I'll come and get you. And I'm like, no, you really can't. They're not allowing anybody in. And I was freaking out because I didn't want to leave my cat. I knew that that would not be good. So I just took a breath and was attempting to use my practice and chant. And fortunately, my cat is very conditioned to getting treats. So when I called him and I said I had some treats for him, he appeared. And this cat is 20 pounds. He's a big boy. And I hadn't been that strong. But boy, I tell you, being in fear gives you a lot of energy. And so I picked him up and threw him in the car. And by the time I opened the garage door and was backing out the car, the whole street was filled with smoke. And I was concerned about, at that point, visibility and hitting something. I really couldn't see, chanting my head off, praying. And as I began to pray and chant, I started to sense that Lee and Yogi were there for me and they were helping me. It was kind of miraculous that I got out as quickly as I did and that my cat came up when I called him. To me, those are minor miracles, but miracles nonetheless. And in the message that the sheriff had sent out, it said, head northeast. And so I got in line and thought, okay, I'm going to head northeast and go to the Lennons because they live northeast. It was bumper to bumper, and there was a policeman directing me to the south. They weren't allowing me to go on the highway. So I went south, and there was no traffic. It was a breeze. And I thought, okay, I'll get on the highway. But unbeknownst to me, they had shut the highway down because there were high winds, and the fire was going down the highway, the corridor, and it was jumping back and forth. So I had to figure out how to get to my daughters, because that's who lives southeast of me, and miraculously picked my way through the area and found my way and was able to talk to her. And we met up 
and I ended up at her house. To me, those were all minor miracles, but like I said, miracles nonetheless. And in the three weeks that followed, I stayed with them and I I was pretty much in shock, but I, in retrospect, was well taken care of and very lucky to have someplace to land and to be loved and taken care of. Oh, I wanted to talk about also the surgery that happened. Now I'm going to get into the lessons and some of the other things that I've learned that I call truths. Jumping back to the surgery in 2021, I really can say that I experienced quite a number of Bardo states. I'm hypersensitive to drugs, so it was a challenge to find something that would work for me after the surgery. The opiates and all of those things, I immediately start hallucinating, and it's just not good. So we were playing with a number of different things. And one day they gave me gabapentin, which is a drug that's supposed to handle nerves. And what it did for me, they gave it to me in the evening. It paralyzed me pretty much. I woke up and I was only able to get help to sit in a chair and I knew that I was no longer in control of my bodily functions, anything. My mind was working, but for six hours, I had to sit there in that chair, not able to really move until six hours when the drugs started to move out of my system and metabolized. And it really made me recognize and have great compassion for people who are paralyzed because that's essentially the state I was in. At one point during the summer prior to the surgery, I experienced the realm of the hungry ghost. It was in the middle of the night, and I was in a care facility, and of course the kitchen closes down, and because of my condition, I would eat, and then I was losing it. It wouldn't stay with me, and At home, I can go and get something to eat. And here I had no access to food. And so there I was sitting in my bed again, thinking I'm going to starve to death or I'm starving or I'm hungry. And to really experience what that felt like for people who don't have food readily. And then there was another time in the hospital where. I had the experience of what it was like to be in a nursing home and not be able to get the help that I needed. My mom in her later years was in a nursing home and we would go visit. And in the nursing home, they would have these poor people lined up in the hallway when it was time to eat in their wheelchairs. And they just had to wait. They were understaffed and they just had to sit there One woman, all she could do was say, help, help, help. I don't want to be here. Help me. So those experiences, uh, really, I'm sorry, um, touched me deeply and um, gave me a great sense of compassion for others. 
I was reading something that Lee had wrote in one of his journals. He was talking about being tender-hearted. And I find myself lots of times brought to tears when I think of other people in similar situations. And I, I think that as we get older and we reflect back on our lives, that that also is a natural part of the divine path of growing old. So when I considered doing this talk about a month ago, I started writing down what I called my truths. And some of these are based on the cancer experience that I'm still living through. And some of these were based on the house burning down. One of the things that I experienced when the house burned down, it was a real loss of identity. I had been for years calling myself an artist and my house was filled with things that I had created. Art is very important to me. And so I had spent years collecting not only art, but artifacts and was very identified with being an artist, having a good sense of design and decoration and interior design and art. And when all of those things were gone, I really began to see how I had identified who I was with them. And there was such an intense sense of groundlessness, questioning who am I if I'm not an artist or a fashionista or any of the things that I had surrounded myself with for years and saw what a trap collecting those things had been. Because simultaneously, in that sense of who am I and what value do I have and this groundlessness, there was a tremendous release of energy from my attachment and identification with all those various things. Only in retrospect did I see that I had to, quote, go through the fire of purification in order to start to heal. And once I was out of the shock phase of it, that energy was starting to return to me and help me in my healing process. Sometimes I think of Lee and the yogi as tricksters, and I feel like they obviously had a hand in this, and that that was one of the main reasons. I mean, there were a thousand homes that were lost in the fire, and I know that the fire wasn't just specifically for me, but that's one of the things I got, that that energy from identification of all those things I had collected over the years was possible for me to reclaim in a way that it wouldn't have been in any other way. And with everything that was going on in 2021, I wasn't being able to take care of myself or the house. It was too much house for me anyway. My doctor had said, well, this would be a good time to put your house up for sale because <laughs> you need a smaller situation. And I remember thinking, well, you have a lot of nerve. <laughs> me sell my house? 
this is so important to me. And I recognized later that the fire really helped release me from that. It was going to take a flood or a fire or something to pry me out of there because I was so invested in that house that I needed help. And this was the kind of divine help that I got, not looking at it at the time as, wow, this is really great. My house burned down and I'm free. It's taken me reflection and consideration to recognize that. And so that's carried through the freedom from attachment. When I started getting some money from the insurance company to buy things that I needed because I didn't have any clothes. <laughs> I didn't have anything, just the clothes on my back and my cats. I did take a winter coat because I knew there was going to be a storm. So that was a good thing. But I started considering that I didn't want to recreate what I had before. I was pretty committed to not trying to remake my little heaven loca that I thought I was living in. As I began to buy things and get things from people, people showed up and gave me all kinds of things. I could recognize inside me that there was a level of detachment that had been born out of this experience to these things. And I recognized too that I had the tendency when I would buy something like a kid, oh, maybe it'd be great for a day or two. And then it became like lost, like wallpaper, just another thing that I didn't pay attention to. Some of the most precious things I got or the greatest outpouring of things that were meaningful came from the Sangha. Joanne had put out the word that my house had burned down and thought it would be nice for me to have some sacred art and sacred things in my apartment. And when I talked to her, I said, great, when should I expect the box? And she chuckled and said, box? She goes, I've got boxes here. I'm going to have Dan drive these up to you. I hadn't even gotten anything yet, but I was so overwhelmed and touched by how the Sangha was showing up for me again in my greatest hour of need, quote unquote, that I was overwhelmed and they hadn't even showed up yet. And the day they show up, Dan starts bringing in these boxes. There were like 15 boxes and bags and things filled with, well, I didn't even know what they had in them because once he came and dropped everything off, I moved him to my office and left him there for a month because I couldn't take in everything that was being offered to me. It was such a level of love and outpouring of grace. I wasn't ready to take it in yet. I allowed myself the time and the space, which was another lesson for me to be able to get to it slowly but surely. And there were times when I'd be opening a box and it would be levels upon levels of gifts and I would have to stop for the day. That was the level of resiliency I had at the time. But finally, everything got unpacked and everything was so amazing. People 
gave me statues and bowls and clothing and prayers and shawls and you name it. So I was back in the business of being a spiritual student with all the accoutrements again and was really, like I said, touched. What I recognized with all those things and subsequently in other situations was that it wasn't so much the things that were sent, but it was the love and care and concern and attention that I received that were the jewels of that. And I was very grateful for the people that I call my Sangha. And that's something I hold to this day. I always have felt that, but even more so now, as I get older, this is rare. I am very lucky and grateful to feel the magic and the drala of Lee and Yogi in my life now. Recently, I talked to a woman at a party whose mother, interestingly enough, had the same disease that I am living through. And unfortunately, when her mother had it, there wasn't the same treatments, and she didn't discover it until it was too late. So her mother had died seven years ago, and I marvel that I'm still here. And I recognized in going through all of this also that my life is not my own, really, and it never has been. I am here by the grace of God, and I'm not sure if I have to do anything special (laughs) other than living my life and working to be present and grateful. Maybe that's enough. But I am here at the behest of the divine. And if you think that you are in control of your life, good luck to you, because you're not. The divine, God, whatever you want to call it, it's out of your hands. That's also another truth or a lesson that I really embrace and have learned. One of the things I wrote down is saying yes to what has gone on is a choice that keeps me in the present. We've talked about accepting what is as it is here and now is really important. And that's also been something that I have really embraced even more fully. And that is also what the divine path of growing old is. I used to think the divine path of growing old was some guarantee, like the golden age, the golden years, they tell you in the movies or whatever, that things are going to get easier. That's not what the divine path of growing old is. It really is about, well, I call it the three R's. I call it reflection, remembering, and realization. As we get older, and we learn to relax, that was the fourth R, we begin to reflect on our lives and accept, hopefully being on a path, what has been given to us and how we were and how we wish to be different and accepting and forgiving ourselves for what has gone on that has not been what we've wanted to be. That to me is accepting what is as it is. Being able to see yourself, foibles and the good, bad, and the ugly, and relax about it and just accept it. And that doesn't mean that you don't, that I don't work 
to be a, a good person, show kindness, compassion, generosity. But it also means that I need to try and work that way with myself. So that's what, to me, the divine path of growing old is. In all this reflection of impermanence, it's not to say that I don't have my relapses. It's kind of like enlightenment, and I'm not claiming that I am, but it comes and goes at times. And I've noticed as I get closer, because here we are, December 17th, and it's getting close to the, quote, anniversary of my house burning, like ghosts of Christmas past, my things start floating up and going, oh, remember that great coat you had, or remember those beautiful earrings you had, or remember all your collection of Hashbina shawls that you had, all of that stuff. And I go, yeah, okay, they were lovely. And that's not what's going on now. And what you got was all of these truths and improved health. Would you trade it for those things? I asked myself that and it's like, of course not. Was I born yesterday? So I imagine that the ghosts of things past will continue to arise until the date and maybe even after, but they do not hold sway. Those things don't hold me like they used to. I think I got that lesson on a, a deeper level about attachment and identification. And it's something I have to work with. My hair has grown really long and I'm like, my lovely hair. Okay, here you go. You're starting to identify with your hair being long. Come on, Badra, get it together. And I thought, okay, I'm going to cut it all off on the 30th. And that will be another ritual that I can do to reinforce my non-attachment to things. And as the days went on, I thought, you know, you don't have to do something that dramatic. You can cut your hair off and maybe it'll look nice. But maybe you can just relax around it and let it not be yet another identifying quality that you embrace. This identification thing and attachment is tricky. You really have to stay on top of it and be vigilant. I said, the destruction of my home and all its contents is such a lesson in surrender. Nowhere to go, nothing to do, literally. I kind of laugh sometimes when I get hit over the head by lessons because I would say that I'm kind of the spiritual student that goes kicking and screaming down the path. And the cancer and the house burning are uniquely tailored to an unavoidable reality for me. What do you do? It's not like you can just wish cancer away or deny that your house burned down. So it was being up against the wall and having to turn around and face my suffering and the reality of my situation. And that's a gift. When I'm in my work eye, there are other eyes in there too, but when I'm in my work eye, I am very grateful and have the perspective that I'm being taken care of. It's not necessarily what the normal person would think is being taken care of, but it is if I'm committed to a life of freedom and spirituality and all of the other things that are attendant 
for why people come to the path. So I'm very grateful for everything that's happened to me. And that's an experience I wouldn't ever trade in retrospect. Also, something that's become a truth for me is that Rolling Stone song, you can't always get what you want, but you get what you need. That's also been a truth for me as far as things and money and care and attention. If I'm patient and relaxed and open, I usually get what I need and recognizing it too. That's an important part. The gratitude that you bring to any situation is really crucial. We have a mind. The mind is a computer. It is a binary yes, no, good, bad mechanism. And what I've learned is that making judgments about this is good or this is bad or I like this or I don't like this or any of those kinds of things are really a useless process because I'm not thinking in the big picture. I had no idea, but the yogi and Lee did about what this experience could offer me. And so I work now to reserve judgment about this is good or not so good. I don't like it. And I'm also learning to relax and work with being present. The ego creates divisiveness and separation from God. And the opportunity and the recognition of the impermanence is that we are connected. And when I let go of my yes, no, good, bad, and I'm able to step into and work with being present, then I'm entering into a field where death doesn't exist. Death does not exist in the present. There's the theoretical or the philosophical perspective of that. But several weeks ago, <laughs> Red Hawk said to me, there's no Badra Mitchell. And I said, what? He goes, yeah, just consider that there's no Badra Mitchell. And when I really worked with that, it blew my mind. When I can tap into the present, then there is no separation. There is unity. There is hanging out in the divine. With the divine, there is no separation. The phrase that often gets tossed around in the New Age community is, oh, we're all one. We're unified. We're all one. And even though it's kind of a New Age phrase, the reality is that when you are present, in the present, and that happens occasionally for me when I work with it, then you are unified. You are not separated from the divine. And it tenderizes my heart. It makes me in love with everybody. My daughter's about to give birth. And it's like the drug Pitocin. Is that it? There's a love drug that the mother produces when they're breastfeeding that helps with the bonding process. It's kind of like that. When I'm in the present, then I'm in love. And there's nothing like it. There is nothing like it. Anyway, if people have questions or considerations. So I have one question. Wasn't there something that didn't burn in the fire? 
Oh, yes. Okay. So I have a story. While I was at my daughter's house for three weeks, there is a group of people that are called the Good Samaritans. And they go around from disaster to disaster and help people out. Anyway, we signed up to have my house sifted. These people come out in hazmat outfits. Some had them on, some didn't. And they sift through the stuff to see if anything survived. And while I was at my daughter's in shock and anticipating this sifting that was going to go on, I kept thinking to myself, I know the yogi is there. I had one Vigraha and I've had it for years. And I kept thinking, I know he's there. I know we're going to find him. So the day of the sifting was a bitter cold day. It was winter. I thought I was going to sit in the car, but they don't allow you to do that because as soon as they find something, you have to claim it. So you have to be there at the site. So I'm there and I'm pretty detached. We do a little prayer circle, which was nice. And some of the people are coming up to me going, how are you doing? Are you okay? And I really was kind of detached in a way. There wasn't any real emotion going on about the stuff. So they start bringing out things, some pottery and some other pieces and things that have survived. And then they bring out the yogi. And when I saw him, I was, oh my God, he really is there. And there he is, pretty much intact almost completely intact, the Vagraha, sitting there amidst the snowy backdrop on the edge of what used to be the house on the lip of the basement wall on the top of it. Like I said, in the past, I haven't always acknowledged all the blessings and things that have been in my life. So when that showed up, I just started crying and I thought, he really is there. He really is there for me. So that was what they uncovered. And that was pretty miraculous. Anybody else? So I'm wondering if you could talk about impermanence with regard to the way that we think about the future. You're about to have a grandchild. And personally, when I think about impermanence, it's usually based on my fears about the future. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering if you could say anything about yeah. that. Yeah, Sarah, is, she looks like she could give birth any minute now because she's carrying a really large baby. But I've noticed inside myself that there's fear because I don't know how long I have. And I've thought that I might not get to see this child. I have no idea if I'm going to be around. And I have found inside myself that I have not allowed myself to get excited about the coming birth. And that's based in fear, fear that I won't get to see him or that I won't be a part of his life. Working to just really be present. Sometimes it's just one foot in front of the other and not projecting into the future what's going to happen or what will happen or how great things will be or anything. That's what I'm learning. But that doesn't mean that I can't enjoy living, that I don't enjoy my life. It's working not to project how it's going to be or how it will be, because I have no idea. And 
when I wake up in the morning, it's become a practice of mine to say, oh, here I am. Gosh, I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful for today. Thank you for this moment and the next and the next. And that is something also about impermanence because we usually think about impermanence in a big catastrophic way, like somebody dies or your house burned down. But impermanence is with us moment to moment. It's tied uniquely to a linear time frame. This moment is gone. The next moment, the next moment, the next moment. It's tied to the seasons. Seasons come and go. It's not a tragic death. It's just what is. Our bodies are in flux. And this reality that we live in is in constant flux. And to me, that's impermanence. I have a couple of jokes that I wanted to end with. (laughs) I think Red Hawk sent these to me. If it's okay, I'll take just a few minutes and run through these. Old age comes at a bad time. I'm at the age where my back goes out more than I do. At age 20, we worry about what others think of us. At age 40, we don't care what they think of us. At age 60, we discover they haven't been thinking of us at all. It's paradoxical that the idea of living a long life appeals to everyone, but the idea of getting old doesn't appeal to anyone. These are jokes. I thought they were funny. Maybe they were realistic statements, but I think they're funny. I was thinking about how people seem to read the Bible a lot more as they get older, and then it dawned on me, they're cramming for their final exam. So anyway, that's the end, (laughs) or the beginning. You did speak about divine paths of growing old, and you mentioned these three R's. Oh, I made those up in the shower today. (laughs) Those aren't written anywhere, but reflection, relaxation, remembrance, and there was one other which I don't remember. (laughs) Realization. Realization, thank you. I've seen that this time in our life, most people do reflect on what's gone on before, how they were, how their life's gone. I guess the Castaneda work calls it recapitulation, another R word. You have to relax around all of that. You just have to be okay with whatever's gone on and remember who you are, essentially, your essential I, accepting it all with grace and dignity. Thank you. By the way, thank you all for coming. Your presence is an honor to me.